The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Welcome to The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. I'm your host, Jason Greenblatt. With tensions rising across the world, diplomacy is needed perhaps now more than ever. During my time as former White House Middle East envoy and as one of the chief architects of peace between Israel and its Arab neighbors, I've had the chance to witness the power of diplomacy firsthand, and today, I would like to share that perspective with you. Shalom, salam, and welcome to The Diplomat. So what did Ben and Jerry's ice cream, Jerusalem, Taiwan, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, boycotts, babies, and passports have in common? My guest today is Aliza Lewin, president of the Louis D. Brandeis Center for Human Rights Under Law. She's also the co-founder and partner in Lewin and Lewin LLP. She's represented numerous high-profile clients, including victims of religious discrimination. Take a listen to our conversation so you could see how all these tie together. And put down that ice cream you might be eating until you listen to this episode. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Ali is a Lewin, uh, amazing lawyer, many, many high-profile cases uh, under your belt, so to speak. So excited that you joined me today. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here, Jason. Thank you. So we're here to talk about ice cream, okay? Uh, I grew up eating Ben & Jerry's. I loved it. Uh, they have some amazing flavors. And then all of a sudden, one day I woke up and realized, huh, I can't eat Ben & Jerry's anymore, at least until this thing is resolved. Tell me how Ben and Jerry's became politicized, especially when it came to Israel. Sure. Well, this story became an international story when last summer in July of 2021, Ben and Jerry's announced that they were not going to be renewing the license of the individual who had been manufacturing and distributing Ben and Jerry's ice cream in Israel for almost 35 years. That's Avi Zinger. He has 
a unique relationship with Ben and Jerry's. He actually brought Ben and Jerry's to Israel when most people in the United States didn't even know what Ben and Jerry's was. Uh, about 30, over 34 years ago, he tasted the ice cream. He was in the United States. He was looking for a business to bring back to Israel and realized that Israel didn't even have such a thing as premium ice cream. So he met with Ben Cohn, pitched to him this idea. Ben liked it. And that's how their relationship began. He came, he opened up his first scoop shop in Tel Aviv, and there were lines down the block because Israelis had never had this kind of ice cream before. And he built up his business over the last 34 years, where now what he was doing and does is he manufactures. He's the only licensee Ben & Jerry's has in the world. So he actually manufactures the ice cream at his factory in Israel using the same ingredients, the same sources, the same formulas as Ben & Jerry's in Vermont. He makes the same ice cream and he sells it and distributes it to all of the major supermarket chains throughout Israel, throughout Judea and Samaria and the West Bank, throughout all of Jerusalem, East, West, Jerusalem, all over, including in Palestinian cities, um, to the supermarkets, to the mini markets in the gas stations around the country. And what happened is about 10 years ago, the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement started pressuring Ben and Jerry's to cut off its relationship with its Israeli licensee. And that pressure built over the decade. They started with letters and emails to the board, but then started targeting the consumers at the free cone days when you had customers lining up at the Ben & Jerry's ice cream shops. They would hand out very uh, hostile flyers to the people waiting online. And the pressure built until, as you may recall, in May of 2021, when there were the hostilities in Gaza, um, and online, there was tremendous anti-Israel sentiment expressed, and that pressure got to be so much so that the board was insisting that Avi Zinger stop his distribution and his sales over the Green Line. They so let's talk about the BDS movement. And you know, I'll share just my take, but I really want to hear your take on it. To me, the BDS movement is anti-Semitic. It's anti-Israel. Um, it actually hurts Palestinians. And it's nothing more than a bunch of loudmouth activists who really know nothing about the conflict, don't care much about the Palestinians, and cause a tremendous damage for everyone other than themselves because, you know, they sort of live off this conflict. What's your take on it? Yes, I agree. What most people don't realize is that the ultimate goal of the founders of the BDS movement, not necessarily everybody, because I don't think everybody who follows the BDS movement fully understands what the founders and the originators intended. But the founders of the BDS movement, the goal is actually to eliminate the Jewish state of Israel. And the BDS movement has three main calls, right? The first is to presumably create uh, a Palestinian entity in the 1967 areas. Then they ask for you know, equal rights for Arabs in Israel, but Arabs already have equal rights under the law in Israel. So the only reason they're asking for that is because of the third demand, which is, as you described so well in your book, the right of Palestinian, the Palestinian right of return. And so what they really want is not two states. They're not looking for a Palestine next to a Jewish state of Israel. What they're looking is to flood the Jewish state with these Arab Palestinian refugees, not to have them move to the Palestinian state, but to move to the Israeli state and to thereby create a Palestine next to a Palestine. So the ultimate goal of the BDS movement is to destroy the Jewish state of Israel. But what happens when they go after entities like 
Avi Zinger and Ben and Jerry's, is they're actually harming the Palestinians. Because the primary consumers of Ben and Jerry's ice cream, actually, believe it or not, in the West Bank are the Palestinians. At the supermarkets where they're sold, on the seam lines, for example, at the Rami Levies, the majority of consumers and even some of the employees at some of these stores are Palestinian because the Palestinian consumers love Rami Levies. They get a much wider variety and selection than they do at their stores in the Palestinian cities at much better prices because of the com competition. And so they come and they shop. If they're not able to get the Ben and Jerry's ice cream in their stores, or if Avi Zinger is not able to provide it to the Palestinian cities, the Palestinians are harmed. Not only are they harmed because they can't get it, but Avi Zinger embodied, and to this day still does embody, the Ben and Jerry's social mission. Over the years, he has invested in not only financially, but with his time and his energy, many, many coexistence projects. I'll tell you about just one of them, which is a remarkable program called MEET, the Middle East Entrepreneurs of Tomorrow. It's a program that's run together with MIT University in Massachusetts. But what they do is they bring Palestinian and Israeli high school students together for three summers in a row. So the same cohort comes back again and again. And they see that over those three years, not only are they giving the students training in entrepreneurial skills and understanding business, um, but those students develop the opportunities to really share their narratives and develop relationships and develop really strong personal connections, which are what you need, as you described in your book, right? That's what's needed as the basis for peace and coexistence is exactly this type of relationship building. And what happened is Avi became a primary center focal point of this program. They would bring the students to the factory. They'd use Ben and Jerry's as a, as a model business for their discussions. He helped uh, score and evaluate their final kind of presentations. Um, and there was one summer where their uh, financial funding was in jeopardy, and it looked as if they might not be able to continue the program. Avi Zinger actually arranged for Ben and Jerry's to make a $100,000 donation to this program to make sure that it would be able to continue. They were very grateful. He actually brought the members of the board on one of their trips to Israel to the graduation ceremony for this program, where they saw sitting in the same room, the families of the Israeli and the Palestinian students sitting side by side as their students went up on the stage and graduated. And they loved it. But what happened is, and so now we go back to July, 2021, what happened is, when Avi Zingo refused the demands of the board of Ben and Jerry's to stop the sales of his and distribution of the ice cream over the green line, they said, well, that's it. We're ending our 35 year relationship with you. We are not going to renew your license. And you have to understand that Avi Zinger told them, I'm not going to stop the sales, both because it would harm the Palestinians and because it's illegal under Israeli law. I can't do it. And we can talk a little bit more about that. But when he said that, they said, we're going to stop your license. Well, when they said, we will not renew your license, that in effect meant that what Ben and Jerry's would be doing is not just boycotting the settlements, right, or Judea and Samaria or the West Bank. It meant that Avi Zinger was going to be precluded from manufacturing and distributing his ice cream anywhere in Israel once his license expired. So his license was set to expire at the end of December this year which meant that come January 1, 2023, there would be no more Ben and Jerry's ice cream anywhere in Israel, not just the West Bank, but anywhere in Israel. 
And this was the full boycott of Israel that the BDS movement was really hoping to achieve. So Shark Tank meets peace, which is very cool for Avi Zenger. Let's talk about the players. There's a number of players here, and I think people get confused. So we have the BDS folks. We have the Ben & Jerry's board. We have Unilever. We have Avi Zinger, I don't know, and we have you, and I don't know if we're leaving anyone else out, but maybe explain to the listeners who they are, what their goal was. And for example, I stopped eating Ben and Jerry's then. I still don't eat it. I'm not sure if I should still, you know, boycott it, if you will. Uh, should I boycott it here, not in Israel? Because obviously I don't want to hurt Avi Zinger. Tell us about the players and where you think the state of play is today. So in 2000, when Unilever merged with Ben and Jerry's, they allowed for the creation of an independent board that was supposed to give input on the issues, the social mission of the company. That's the board that I'm talking about that was putting pressure on Avi Zinger to stop the sale. Avi Zinger was a licensee in Israel, as I say, manufacturing and distributing this. So you have Unilever, the parent company, you have the independent board in Vermont, and you have Avi Zinger, who's operating as the Ben and Jerry's in Israel as the licensee. What happened is the Brandeis Center, when this all broke last July, connected with Avi Zinger and agreed to represent him. And we explained to him that he could bring a lawsuit in the United States against both Unilever and the Ben and Jerry's homemade and their board in Vermont on a very simple, straightforward legal theory. As I explained to you, Israel has not only an anti-boycott law, Israel has an anti-discrimination law. And just like we have in the United States, anti-discrimination laws that say you can't discriminate on the basis of race or color, national, ethnic origin, religion, gender, a whole list of categories, same exists in Israel. But in Israel, that long list also includes residents. It says you may not discriminate based on where somebody lives in terms of your provision of services or products. And so Avi Zinger was explaining to them, I cannot say I will distribute only up to the green line and I will not provide my product across the green line because that is a violation of Israeli law. And American law makes it clear that you cannot, as a condition of a contract, require a party to a contract to do something illegal. And that's what we said Unilever and Ben and Jerry's was requiring Avi Zinger to do. They were saying the only way after all these years, and you should realize it was a foregone conclusion that his license would be renewed because he epitomized everything that Ben and Jerry stood for. And so, and he did it exceptionally well. And so when they turned around and they said, it was only for this reason that you will not stop selling, that we are no longer renewing your license, that was imposing an unlawful condition on the renewal of his license. That was the lawsuit that we brought in New Jersey against Unilever and the Ben and Jerry's in Vermont. And what happened soon after we had filed that lawsuit and were seeking an injunction is conversations began between Unilever and Avi Zinger. And Avi, to his credit, realized that this was much more than just a business dispute that he had with Unilever, but that this had become a cause and an issue of importance to the broader international Jewish community, quite frankly, and, and beyond the Jewish community. I mean, this is why you saw states attorneys generals that were announcing that their pension funds pursuant to their anti-BDS laws were uh, divesting from Unilever stock. Uh, you saw, you know, organizations around the globe get involved. And so Unilever realized, I think, that this was not going to go away. And 
Avi Zinger realized that any resolution had to address this attempt to boycott Israel. And so if the goal was to stop all sales of Ben and Jerry's ice cream in Israel, the goal of the BDS movement, I should say, was to stop all sales of Ben and Jerry's ice cream in Israel, the resolution reversed that completely. Because what Unilever did is it recognized that Avi Zinger needed to be able to continue to manufacture and sell the same Ben and Jerry's ice cream that he has been selling for all these years everywhere in Israel, including the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, all over Israel, the same way he's been doing. And so what they did is they sold to him the Arabic and Hebrew trademarks so that he could now continue to sell that same Ben and Jerry's ice cream using the Hebrew and Arabic logos. And so that's now what he will do. And that's, and it's now his business. And by doing this, Unilever has precluded the Vermont board from in any way stopping or preventing the sale of the Ben and Jerry's ice cream in Israel. The Unilever board is unhappy about that. Um, They're still being pushed by the BDS movement. And so they turned around and they filed a suit against their parent company. Avi Zinger is not part of that suit. He's not a party to that suit. But the beautiful thing now is that Unilever, which used to be on the opposite side with Avi Zinger, is now standing arm in arm with Avi Zinger, defending its arrangement, its new arrangement and its new deal with Avi Zinger. As part of that deal, they expressed their opposition to the BDS movement. And they are now, in their papers, they actually incorporated Avi Zinger's entire declaration that we had filed in our case with all the exhibits and the emails, over 100 pages, they incorporated that into their file filing against the Ben and Jerry's board and subsidiary in Vermont. So now Avi Zinger is standing arm in arm with Unilever. Unilever is now trying to work out its own internal issues with its subsidiary, the Ben and Jerry's board. So I think that's an important point. I remember when this happened, people were saying, well, don't just stop eating Ben and Jerry, stop using Unilever products. We have tons of Unilever products in my house. I know that. But I think it's important for people to understand that even if at the time Unilever might have directly, indirectly, inadvertently been a bad actor, they've completely reversed their position and are fighting against this pernicious activity of the BDS movement. Absolutely. So to answer your question about ice cream, I think the answer is show your support for Unilever, but perhaps by eating Talenti or a different Unilever brand. <laughs> Got it. Or go to Israel. But if you're and buy in ben Israel, <laughs> in Israel, buy Ben and Jerry. Support Avi Zinger because Avi Zinger is is a is a hero. He fought this battle and, and won it. So is the last step now this new suit that is against Unilever's uh, fix, if you will, and where does that go from here? So right now the uh, parties are set. There's actually scheduled another hearing, an upcoming hearing. The parties tried to see if they could work this out. And I mean the parties, it's the subsidiary, the Ben and Jerry's board in Vermont and the parent Unilever. They were not able to work it out in mediation. So they're going back to court and uh, Unilever is standing strong. So we'll see, we'll see where that goes. But my, as I've said in the past, Unilever did the, the morally and correct and just thing here in, in the arrangement that it worked out with Avi Zinger. And I trust and believe that the court will decide in Unilever's favor. Are there similar things going on? This one made big news. And from time to time, SodaStream, I think, made news in its day. Currently, are there other BDS activities that are going on of this magnitude? Well, I think the BDS movement is always looking for 
targets that they can try to um, to get to uh, to pressure them to end their relationships with Israel. I, I don't know right now who the next company might be, although I have seen stories that have been talking about the, um, just in general, the ESG rankings. In other words, companies uh, being influenced by some of the, um, by the BDS movement to try and rank any company that's doing business in Israel lower in terms of its uh, social responsibility rankings. And in that regard, there have been stories about um, Morningstar and its subsidiary Sustainalytics and the systems that they use to evaluate companies on that basis. So if you're thinking about kind of where that, I think more recently has been popping up in terms of high profile companies, that may be one, mm-hmm. one place. And how effective was the divestment activity by certain states uh, with respect to Unilever, and given where Unilever is today, have those positions changed by the state attorney generals who put them into place? So I'm not in the Unilever boardroom. I obviously can't say, I don't know how they impacted uh, Unilever in terms of specific decision-making. Uh, it certainly, I think, made it clear, though, that this was an issue of concern to many, many people, not just members of the Jewish community, not just Jewish consumers, uh, but that there were authorities, governmental authorities that recognized this as a boycott of Israel. Um, you know, had, as I say, had we gotten to January 1, 2023, that's what this would have been. And, um, and there were uh, states attorneys generals that were making it clear that this was not an issue that was, that was going to go away. You know, Unilever, I think, realized that, that this was not something that would just blow over. And that's important. And I think it's very important for other companies to understand that too. Um, But it's not only that they should realize that uh, there will be government agencies that are involved. It's that they should begin to realize, as we were talking about, how how the BDS movement actually harms people it claims it wants to support, right? The BDS movement here, Avi Zinger has done so much more with his concrete support of coexistence projects and the time and effort and energy he's put into making sure that there are the ability, the, the opportunities for people to people relationship building so much more than the BDS movement has done with its empty rhetoric. What can the BDS movement point to as something that they've done that has actually been a concrete benefit to the Palestinians. There's nothing, there's nothing. And I do think that companies need to recognize that if they're talking about social justice, if they're talking about working towards peace, the BDS movement is not the way to go. The way to go is to follow the example of people like Avi Zinger and now Unilever, which has recognized that. Yeah, no, indeed. Look, one of the, there's so many issues on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that are so difficult to resolve, if they could even be resolved. But before we even get there, one of the biggest problems that I saw when I was working at the White House was this complete lack of connection between the two societies. And there are good reasons for it, by the way, and I I get that. But I was uniquely situated to connect with Palestinians. I was already connected with Israelis, and I realized how important it is to develop those relationships. We've had Palestinians in our home often for Shabbat meals, and the connection points between Palestinians and Jews, Palestinians and Israelis, and vice versa is so important. We may never get this conflict resolved. I don't want to, you know, pretend that that's 
a couple of Shabbat meals between Jews and Palestinians is going to solve these complicated issues, but it certainly makes it a lot harder when people don't respect the work that Avi Zinger and so many others try to do in connecting the societies and instead try to cut their legs off and go in the opposite direction. I'll give you one more example. Avi Zinger thought, you know, how would, what is the, the Ben and Jerry's way that they would try and approach this this conflict. And he thought, well, why don't I develop a flavor, an ice cream flavor that utilizes products that are grown by Palestinian farmers? So he actually developed a flavor using figs and went and worked with USAID to identify Palestinian farmers who were growing the ingredients that he would need for this flavor. He got special permission from the Israeli government to go into the Palestinian Authority areas with the, where the Israelis are not allowed to go to meet with these farmers. He went so far as to have the artists develop the packaging and he called this flavor Fruits of Peace. And he had the whole design for the packaging for this ice cream. And he was all set and ready to go when then suddenly the Palestinian farmers stopped talking to him do, he's sure, to the BDS pressure, how could you normalize relationships with an Israeli company and actually work with them to create such an ice cream flavor? And so it fell apart, right? It's when they so were on the Very sad, but not, not surprising, right? I, so many times the economic opportunities that we tried to present the Palestinian leadership or some Palestinians fell apart because they have this anti-normalization policy against anything to do with Israel that isn't immediate or absolutely necessary. And it fell on deaf ears with every conversation I had that explained, you're only hurting yourselves. You know, Israel will be fine. You're going backwards and you're not bringing about peace. You're hurting your people. You're not bringing about better lives, but it's almost an impossible thing to convince them how much harm they're causing to the Palestinian people. Yeah. So let me, uh, in, in, a, in a closing question to you, let me ask you about an unrelated case, but very, very important, something that you and I think your dad were at the forefront of, the Jerusalem passport issue. Tell us about the case and tell us what happened in, in the recent past due to your hard work and your dad's hard work. Thank you, Jason, for asking about that, because that was probably, for me, one of the most meaningful cases that I worked on. And my work on that case took 18 years. 18 years, wow. 18 years. So what most people don't understand about the, when you talk even in your book about President Trump recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, is most people don't really understand that the formal policy of the United States from 1948 until 2017 was that no part of Jerusalem was even considered to be in Israel, much less the capital of Israel. No part of Jerusalem was considered to be in Israel itself. You could see that policy most clearly when you would look at the passport policy of the United States, because the passport policy of the United States was to put the, the country of birth of an American citizen who's born outside the United States, their American passport lists just their country of birth. So for example, if you have two Americans and they're living in Paris and they have a child there, that baby's passport will list France as the place of birth, not a city, just a country. If you have American cities, American, excuse me, American citizens living in Tel Aviv or Haifa, their child's passport lists Israel as their place of birth. But the policy of the US, if you had an American citizen born in Jerusalem, was to list 
Jerusalem is the place of birth on the passport instead of Israel, because the policy of the United States was not to recognize any part of Israel, any part of Jerusalem as being in Israel. So let me just ask a, it's a silly yes. question, but I think an important question. Even if the baby was born in the Knesset, the parliament of Israel in Jerusalem, that baby's passport would say Jerusalem, not Israel. Exactly right. And so the, you were in this very odd situation where, as you put it, you could have the Knesset, you could have the Israeli Supreme Court, you could have the Western Wall, you could have the president of Israel's residence. According to Americans, America's formal policy, none of that was actually in Israel. All of those things were technically outside of Israel. But the policy was worse because the passport policy bent over backwards to accommodate any individual who opposed Israel's existence. And what do I mean by that? Let's say you had an American citizen born in Haifa, and so their passport would say Israel on it. And, but they didn't, they opposed the existence of the state of Israel. So they did not want their passport to say Israel. If they requested it, the State Department would agree to go against its policy and put Haifa on the passport. In addition, if you had an American citizen who had been born anywhere in Israel, they could be born in Tel Aviv, Haifa, Jerusalem, anywhere. If they were born before 1948, if they requested it, the, the U.S. State Department would agree to list Palestine as their place of birth on their U.S. passport. This is even though the general rule everywhere else in the world is that the current sovereign had to be listed. So I know someone, for example, who was born in Kiev when it was part of the USSR. His American passport lists Ukraine as his place of birth, even though he didn't feel or associate as, as Ukrainian at the time, right? But the rule was it has to say Ukraine. The exception is for people born in Israel, we will allow them to put Palestine as their place of birth if they're born before 1948. It was almost as if the State Department was giving this little wink to those folks like, don't worry, maybe someday it will only be, it'll be Palestine or it won't be Israel anymore. And I think it's important for people to understand the Palestine that they're referring to is not the so-called Palestine that the Palestinians claim as a state, because that is not what Palestine is. Exactly. They were referring to, as you described so well in your book, the mandate for Palestine, the British mandate for Palestine, which was not a Palestinian, the Palestinian state that Palestinians are talking about today. So what happened in 2002 is Congress actually passed a law that tried to correct this inequity where they said, you know what, if you have an American citizen who's born in Jerusalem and they request it, then the State Department shall list Israel as the place of birth on their U.S. passport and on their birth certificate. I have lifelong friends who had moved to Israel uh, with two children, and they had their third child just a couple of weeks after that law was passed. This is Menachem Binyamin Zivatovsky. Uh, he was born in Shari Tzedek Hospital, which is in a part of Jerusalem that's been under Israel's control since 1948. And after he was born, I told my friends about this law. Now, what you have to realize is President Bush, when he signed the law, he issued a signing statement saying that this piece of the law was part of a much bigger law, larger law. He was not going to follow because he felt that it impermissibly interfered with the president's authority to execute foreign policy. So when my friends went to the, the consulate and asked for their baby's birth certificate to say Israel pursuant to this new law, this is back in 2002, they were told, sorry, 
doesn't matter about the new law. We're not following that. It's going to say Jerusalem. And sure enough, it came back. The passport came back saying Jerusalem. And I joke that at that point is when Menachem Benjamin Zivotovsky became Lewin and Lewin's youngest pro bono client. And that's when my father started working and I started working on it. And we brought a lawsuit on his behalf to try and get Israel put on his passport. That case went up to the Supreme Court twice, back and forth, up and down in the courts, actually went up to the Court of Appeals multiple times before it made it to the Supreme Court. Um, it became a major separation of powers question because the issue was, did Congress have the authority to enact this law and say that the State Department had to put Israel on the passport? Or did the president of the United States have the exclusive authority, as they put it, to recognize foreign sovereigns? We, the first time around, the first time when it went to the Supreme Court, included in our brief a major history lesson, which showed that from President George Washington through Lincoln, over and over again, it was clear the presidents never treated this recognition power as if it was exclusive to the president. It was a shared power. Sometimes Congress would nudge a president to make to recognize a foreign government. Sometimes the president would nudge Congress, and then they'd reach a joint decision. In more recent years, because the Congress and the president were in agreement, the president was the spokesperson, was the voice. But... Um, Clearly, we argued it was a shared power and Congress was able to pass this law. What happened is when we argued this case, the court ultimately, uh, and as I say, this is the second time around. So now the case evolved from being Zivotovsky versus um, Powell to Zivotovsky versus Clinton to Zivotovsky versus Kerry as the case dragged on and on and on. Um, but ultimately in the final round before the Supreme Court, it was, I argued the second case. My father argued the first time. The second one was my first argument before the Supreme Court in 2014. And the court ended up holding against us, which to me, quite frankly, I was surprised because we had everybody behind us. We even had a brief that was filed by all 100 senators supporting this. Imagine now today getting all 100 senators to agree on anything. All 100 senators, in addition to several congressmen, the state's attorneys generals, legal scholars, the entire Jewish community, everyone was supporting this position. But what the Supreme Court basically did is they said, Congress cannot force the executive branch to talk out of two sides of its mouth. You can't have the State Department putting Israel on a passport, which makes it appear that the State Department recognizes Jerusalem as being in Israel, when the executive branch's position is that Jerusalem's not in Israel. And just a side story, this isn't in the opinion, but a side story to give you an example of how far this went. When President Barack Obama gave the eulogy for Shimon Peres on Mount Herzl in Jerusalem, Mount Herzl is like the Arlington Cemetery, of Israel. And it's in an area of Jerusalem that has been under Israel's control since 1948. Barack Obama delivered a eulogy for Shimon Peres, the former president of, and prime minister of, of Israel. And the White House issued a copy of those remarks. The initial tagline for those remarks was Mount Herzl, Jerusalem, Israel. Several this. hours later, you remember this? Several hours later, the White House issued a corrected version of those remarks. The only correction was a line strike through the word Israel. I don't know if this is true. I thought I heard that it was President Obama himself that struck that line, but I'm not sure if that's accurate. 
I don't know who was responsible for it, but the message that was being sent was that the Arlington Cemetery of Israel, that Mount Herzl itself, which has been in Jerusalem, been in the part of Jerusalem that has been under Israel's control since 1948, that that is not Israel? What was that? What was that? That's what I see. What is the message that that's sending? That somehow, someday, if you wait long enough, Israel won't exist. Is that the message? It's just so they struck down the law, but they also went further. And the Supreme Court said, and we're also deciding and holding that the president of the United States has the exclusive authority to recognize foreign sovereigns. I was quite frankly devastated by that opinion. Um, I began to second guess, maybe I should have had my father argue it, you know, maybe he would have won it. Um, but I'll tell you, nobody anticipated that along would come a president like President Donald Trump. Because President Trump then went and recognized not only Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, but also recognized the Golan Heights as being in Israel. And as I'm sure you're aware, pretty much every step the president took, there were lawyers who would run into court to try and block whatever he did from having any kind of impact, any kind of, you know, whatever he was, whether it could be you know, immigration issues, health issues, taxes, how to run his own hotels. An enormous number of lawsuits were filed. How many lawsuits, Jason, do you think were filed challenging the president's recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel or his recognition of the Golan Heights as being in Israel? I don't know. Tell me. Zero. None. And the reason for that is because in the Zivotofsky case, the Supreme Court held that the president of the United States has the exclusive authority to recognize foreign sovereigns. So the Supreme Court of the United States had already held that the president alone had the power that President Trump was exercising when he recognized the Golan Heights as being in Israel and when he recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Wow, and so, so you really had an impact here that I wasn't even aware of. That's, that's <laughs> remarkable. Those 18 years were well worth it. So 18 years, so this was 2015 when that happened. 2017 is when President Trump recognizes Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And I will tell you, you can ask Ambassador Friedman very soon, almost immediately, within certainly within an hour after that recognition, I was already emailing him asking, now when will you change the passport policy? Because there are still American citizens born in Israel who want to be able to list Israel as their place of birth on their passport. And it has always had always seemed to me so unfair not to allow those citizens to do that when the United States, for example, and we now have the news with our representative Nancy Pelosi, with the Speaker Pelosi, sorry, going to the to, to visit Taiwan. Um, Congress in 1994 actually passed a law that allowed American citizens born in Taiwan to list Taiwan as their place of birth. Oh, on took court. the question away from me. I wanted to ask you if Nancy Pelosi had a baby this week in the president's office in Taiwan, what would that passport say? So that passport would be permitted to say Taiwan. And I want you to know at the time, the Chinese were livid and they stopped issuing visas to individuals whose passport said Taiwan on their passport. And so what happened is the State Department issued a proclamation. They put it in bold letters in the Foreign Affairs Manual. This doesn't change our foreign 
policy position. We still recognize China's sovereignty. We're just letting individuals identify as they choose. And one of the arguments that we had made, quite frankly, to the Supreme Court is that they could do the same thing when it came to Jerusalem. And we made that argument. And I actually thought after the second argument, because they had asked a couple of times an oral argument about this kind of disclaimer, that that's the way they would choose to go, that they would say, what you put on a passport is not the same as recognition. We'll let people self-identify as they choose. But they chose not to go that route. They chose to go the recognition route. And they chose to hold that the president is the one who has that exclusive authority. But what happened is, and this is what I think is also so crucially important for people to understand, when President Trump recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, he was not doing anything that favored Israel. He was actually moving that needle back to neutral. Because what he was saying, and he was very careful when he said it, is I'm not demarcating the borders of Jerusalem. And, he, and that is one of the reasons why it took so long to change the passport policy. I will tell you the passport policy, just as an aside, when it came to the Golan Heights was changed immediately. Up until... President Trump's recognition of the Golan Heights as being in Israel, you should know a baby born in the Golan Heights, an American citizen born in the Golan Heights, had to list Syria as their place of birth on their U.S. passport. Yeah, that's cool. That was changed. <laughs> that was changed to Israel after President Trump recognized the Golan Heights being Israel. But Jerusalem, they were reluctant to change because the State Department said, well, how do we know the borders? How do we know what part of Jerusalem is Israel? And ultimately, what we said and what Ambassador Friedman was able to work out and Secretary of State Pompeo worked out was that exactly what the original law had required, which is if an individual believes they were born in Israel and the part of Jerusalem is Israel, then the State Department will list that as Israel. And so on October 30th, 2020, 2020, Menachem Zivotovsky was just turning 18 years old Ambassador Friedman, in a ceremony outside the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem, awarded and handed and gave to Menachem Binyamin Zivotovsky the very first American passport officially listing Israel as the place of birth for an American citizen born in Jerusalem. And now any American citizen born in Jerusalem has the ability to request that Israel be listed as their place of birth on their U.S. passport. And so it took 18 years, but we got the policy changed. And not only did we get the policy changed, we ended up now with the formal position of the United States being that Jerusalem is in Israel, the Golan Heights is in Israel. And that is an incredible tribute both to the work that you did, to the work that Ambassador Friedman did, and to President Trump. Amazing, beautiful story. I just have one last question for you that popped into my head because I, I remember these discussions about how can we put the passport, you know, we don't know the borders of Jerusalem and so on. As I think about it, why was not why was that not their argument about the embassy? Meaning it's the same theory. How do you plop an embassy down in Jerusalem if you can't figure out what the borders of Jerusalem are? Or am I mistaken? Well, I actually think and this is one, it's relevant now today when they're talking about a consulate. When Jerusalem was not considered part of Israel, then what you had is you had a, an American embassy in Tel Aviv with the U.S. ambassador in Tel Aviv, who was representing the United States to all of Israel, but not Jerusalem, because Jerusalem was not Israel. And so then you had a separate consulate 
in Jerusalem with a consul general who reported directly to the State Department from this entity of Jerusalem, right? You have to realize that originally back in 1948, Jerusalem was carved out in deference to the partition plan that had recognized Jerusalem as this corpus separatum, this independent, you know, kind of international city. And after 1967, the feeling was, okay, now let's let the parties figure out the borders. So we're still not going to actually recognize any part of Jerusalem as being in Israel, just keep it the way it is. So you might have said it made some strange sense to have those two representatives, right? An embassy in Tel Aviv and some a consulate in Jerusalem, because Jerusalem's not Israel. But once President Trump recognizes Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and as being in Israel, Right. Then when you move the embassy to Jerusalem, you're moving the embassy to the capital of Israel. And now you no longer need that consulate. The consular services that were being provided to the Palestinians are still being provided the same way in this facility. That's right. Actually, on the scene there. Right there. That's where they can still get all of those services. And now you have the ambassador to Israel representing the U.S. to all of Israel, including Jerusalem, because we finally have formally acknowledged that Jerusalem is in Israel. So now if you're talking about opening up a Palestinian consulate, it doesn't make any sense for it to be in Jerusalem. Certainly not where they're talking about it being in Jerusalem on Agron Street, right? The only reason to put a consulate in Jerusalem, which is quite frankly why the Palestinian Authority wants to put it there, is to challenge the idea that Israel has any sovereignty over Jerusalem. And the message that I think President Trump was sending when he recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel was enough of this little wink and a nod to the idea that someday there won't be an Israel. If you really want to make peace, you have to make peace based on the facts and the truth of what's here. And the facts and the truth are that Jerusalem and the Jewish people have a history in Jerusalem that's thousands of years old, that since the time of King David, right, there has been a Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital of Israel then. It's the capital of Israel now. There will always be a Jewish state of Israel with Jerusalem as its capital. If you want to make peace, you have to recognize that there will always be now a Jewish state of Israel with Jerusalem as its capital. What President Trump said is, I'm not going to define the borders of Jerusalem. If you parties are able to reach some arrangement and some negotiation where you decide that there is going to be a Palestinian state and you are going to have some Palestinian capital in some parts, you can do that. I'm not precluding that, but what I've done, but you have to recognize that the only way you're going to reach that peace is if at the same time you always recognize that there will be from now until eternity, we're recognizing a Jewish state of Israel with Jerusalem as its capital. Aliza Lohan, thank you for your hard work in tackling these historic cases. They're really, really important. Thanks to your dad as well. And uh, keep doing it because uh, we need people in the fight. Thank you so much. Well, folks, there you have it. I think we tied them all together. So when I'm in Israel, I'm going to eat lots of Ben & Jerry's ice cream. One, because it's delicious. And two, because I want to support Avi Zinger, who does some really great work, as you heard in the podcast. Back home here in the U.S., well, I'll certainly support Unilever and keep using many of their products. I'm glad they did the right thing. Oh, and Ben & Jerry's ice cream here in the U.S.? Well, you can make up your minds based on what you heard today. A reminder, my book, In the Path of Abraham, is out. 
If you didn't buy it yet, go pick up your copy today on Amazon or wherever you get your books, or go to inthepathofabraham.com and buy it there. If you want to learn more about today's Middle East, Israel, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, the Abraham Accords, and so much more, this is the book for you. Pick it up today. Until next time, I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek.